Hello, everyone. This is Noah and John. We are from Urban Digs, and we are talking Manhattan. And today, John, we got uh, we got Jason Thomas. Yep. All right. Does a lot of data, head of research, uh, great company, Elegron. Um, Jason, thank you for coming here. This is going to be a very, very uh, analytical conversation. So I look forward to this greatly. Um, but please tell tell everyone out there who's listening who you are uh, and what you do. Certainly. Well, first of all, thank you guys for hosting me. You know, I feel terrible because we're going to be taking millions and millions of viewers away from the inauguration coverage. But, you know, I guess so, so, so be it. Um, I've been with Elegrin a long time. Before that, I was actually, I'm trained as a chemist. So I think that that sheds light on the uh, analytical nature of the way I think. Um, I went from, I, I caught the entrepreneurial bug and spirit in New York City and also the financial bug and spirit and transition away from uh, PhD in chemistry and into finance. Mm -hmm. I purchased a firm, built out a wealth, ma wealth management platform. And that's when I really started to understand, again, taking from that chemistry, the analytical, the data, um, the disconnections, I, I began to, to really understand the disconnections and look for, seek out disconnections between fair market value and intrinsic market value. And I think I've made a career for myself and also, uh, you know, great financial wealth for clients, you know, both finance and real estate and doing just that, trying to monetize, leverage those, uh, those disconnections. So at Elegrin, uh, the role is head of research and also I'm in the new development market as a managing director because I've sold, you know, a lot of new development over the years. But my job really is to deep dive into everything and articulate the findings communicate those findings to Elegrin's team of agents and also the new development department for benefit of the agent consumer interaction and the new dev department and developer interactions. Interesting. Okay. And okay, so go ahead, John. Well, I was gonna say, I, I don't mean to cut you off there, Jason, but I'm just you know curious because you know one of the things that you've mentioned before in some of your reports is you refer to sort of the new development market as the sort of the primary market and the resale market is a secondary market. These are sort of, you know, finance terms that we're sort of getting, you know, composed into real estate, which I think is fantastic because it's, you know, essentially different, same asset, different, just different asset class. And I was wondering if you could kind of, you know, just take a moment to kind of explain how you see that. Yeah, it's a good question. So that's something we've really tried to bestow on a lot of the agents is that, as you just mentioned, it really is just another asset class. In fact, it, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's the, the most traded, right? Heavily invested asset class of anything right across the world. Um, so that's really what it is primary meaning from the sponsor, right? This is like a, um, someone going public. I mean, we can throw in Compass, right? Compass is looking at going public. That is a primary offering of shares. Whereas with sponsors selling new development, that is a primary offering of that real estate asset. And then the secondary trades, that's what happens on the open market. Um, you know, that's, the, that's the resale side of the business. You know, one, one, investor trading, you know, the stocks, the real estate asset to another. So, yeah, know, I wish, I, I wish you could get, get, get in early, um, like you can in, in, in an IPO market. I don't know a lot of people that can buy a new development at maybe 50 cents on the dollar and then, and then IPOs and you sell it at a dollar. Well, you know, um, let me jump in right there. That's interesting. Now you're exactly right. Back in 2013, when the era of irrational exuberance, a lot of people refer to it kicked off there really was a friends and family stage, which brokers would do anything to get into because the prices at that 
at that point were lower than they what they would be when it really hit the schedule A. So that was that was your you know your IPO at a at a at a discount. Right. Has that, all right. So now you look at the market. So now you look at the market and you got the primary. So you got the primary, which is the new development stock, which is your primary product. You got the secondary product, which is your, your resale stock. What what's going on that's that's making a big difference between these two sectors for, for the common people out here, the, the buyers and the sellers and the agents representing them? Good question. And I'm not certain. I mean, that's that's why I'm really excited we're on this call. I'm not certain the consumer differentiates between the two. But I think you guys in particular, in all honesty, Urban Diggs has really, really shed light on the secondary market. And what we've seen in you know, the vast amount of data and graphs that, that you gentlemen offer is that the primary market is really, I'm sorry, the secondary market is really coming back, right? Like we're hitting those pre-COVID levels. You know, you've taken us through that, projected the entire thing. And also too, what your research has really shown to me, and I think the consumer, is that the under 1.5, I mean, I might even say 1.2 market, really wasn't touched by COVID at all. I mean, it's, it's so resilient, it's really incredible, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of positivity on the secondary market and that's a great thing. And you guys have, you know, honestly shed light on that and that's a great thing. The problem is, is with new development, again, the primary market, it's a totally different world. And the thing is, the problems, these, we're going to use the word comorbidities because that's a big, you know, catchphrase with, with COVID, is that these comorbidities existed, they, they, were, they were in place and affecting the market prior to the onslaught of COVID. And this is overpricing and oversupply. And a vaccine and a return to normalcy on the COVID front, it can't remedy those problems. Because again, we were vastly oversupplied on the primary market before COVID. So that's what, you know, I wanted to talk about some today. And, that, you know, there's certainly a, a myriad of examples we could use, um, you know, and, and we can go through a couple of those if you, you know, if we have time. No, I, I don't want to go through examples. I just rather find out more on, on, on a micro or a macro side, um, you know, to, to pull some insights here. I mean, what's going to move that inventory? Okay, good question. So just to give, let me first, you know, we, we identified a problem, oversupply. Let me quantify that a little bit first. You know, a lot of the buildings, when you look under the hood and you see what percent sold, you know, you might think just because of, you know, the sales rep, their job is to promote the building and, you know, everything's moving along. And when you really look at things, a lot of these buildings have been on the market two and even three years mm -hmm. are, you know, 20 and 10, 20 and 30% sold. Now that's by unit count. When you look at percent sold by dollar volume of overall sales of the total sale out of the building, that those numbers 10, 20, and 30 often become five, 10, and 20 percent sold. Okay. And, and what that tells you automatically, you'll make, I see you're shaking your head. You, you gentlemen can make that, you can already make the connection. They're selling the smallest, least expensive units and leaving the heavy lift, you know, yet to come. Right. So, you know, that's a major problem is that the market, and again, your data says this you know, one bedrooms, less expensive units are moving. COVID really hasn't had such a, you know, applied downward pressure on that market, but the bigger units are having a lot of trouble. And unfortunately, new development, primary offerings, the majority of these buildings are actually, you know, two or more bedrooms. So two, three, four, or even five bedrooms. And that's a problem. So, you know, Noah, if, if you want me to just jump into the second part of that question was, you know, what do we do about that, right? I mean, there's a major problem. 
a lot of this inventory was built when it was built. You know, the sales cycle, the life cycle of building starts years in advance, right, with permits. So we, you know, developers underwrote during that peak exuberance, right, during that 13, 14, 15, 16, and now the buildings are being delivered. And unfortunately, there's a gaping disconnect between un developer underwriting five years ago and consumer appraisal right now. And on top of that, the problem is, you know, th these buildings were underwritten and built when there was, well, sorry, underwritten, when there was a large amount of money moving from the East to the West. And that spigot has largely turned off. I mean, so, that's probably, you're probably talking about like 2016, 17, maybe even 18, I would guess. Yeah, so my, my research leans me to believe that the actual peak occurred at, in mid to late 2015. Mm -hmm. With resale, I'm sorry, with, um, you know, the, the time lag and new development coming in, you know, that did extend to 16 and 17 in terms of pricing. But as far as consumer exuberance, I think that peaked in 15. But you're exactly right. So that time period, these things were built and designed for money flowing east to west. It's dried up for the most part. And now we're left with this huge dearth of inventory with, you know, big inventory, two, three, four, five. It, it, it could go rental. Certainly, certainly. That, that is one, that's one quick way, right? Yeah, and, I mean, it could, I mean, we're talking about how to absorb it. It could go rental. It, it could, it could, the rental market's in a terrible place right now. Um, I think, you know, now the contrarian to me thinks it might be bottoming and, and, and in the process of coming back to life. So um, who knows what might happen there? Uh, I would imagine there's going to be distressed asset sales coming sure. in and scooping up the worst of the worst situations that are out there, those that are over leveraged and, mm -hmm. and got product that's not moving right now. Um, just our timing was just, you know, got hit by COVID. Yes, certainly. And so just to, to dive on, I agree with you on the first. I think rental is tied to COVID. COVID is on, hopefully, you know, we've rounded that curve on the backside. The rental market will come back. On the distress sales, these bulk sales, you know, it really, the success of that all comes down to the bulk purchaser. Will they, will they you know, um, remarket these units at acceptable prices? Or will they also go for, you know, big gains and not really discount the price enough? So it could just be a transfer of, you know, inventory risk from the, the current developer to the bulk buyer. We just have to wait and see on that. Yeah. But you know, one way is really what we've been speaking to developers about is changing the narrative. And so what I mean by that is we typically now use, and this probably goes, you know, these are probably questions you would have led into a little bit later, but the market has forever used the comp method. So that's the comparable sales approach to valuation. And the problem with that is it's always looking over its shoulder. It's always looking backwards, right? Every, it's always based on previous sales. And the problem with that is, well, and that's what created the market, the upturn in the first place that was unhealthy and ultimately unsustainable is that every time a, a consumer looked back you know, the one right below it sold for this price. And the one before that, they just climbed, they just piggybacked each other and leapfrogged each other. And so the same thing happens in the opposite direction in a down market, right? So every time you look back, so we've seen examples where developers to move product are having to, and this is public information, drop prices 35 to 40, even more percent, okay? Mm -hmm. So if I'm a two bedroom buyer and I look back at a building and they've got 90 of 102 beds still remaining. And the last one sold at a 40% discount just to move momentum, just to gain momentum. 
I'm going to say, look, you want to continue momentum. I want a 45% discount. So that's a problem, right? It's this self-fulfilling prophecy straight down a slope. It's a slippery slope. So what we, what we like to articulate is change the narrative, which means maybe we need to look at a different way of appraising. And that's where we've written and published a paper recently in September about at least using it as not as an alternative, at least as uh, in tandem, the, the, uh, instead of just, just solely the comparable sales approach, also the, um, keeping. can you still hear me? I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Keep going. Okay. Um, also the income capitalization method or the right. income method. And, and we can go into that further, but it's, it's a way to stop the, you know, stop the slide because it really relies on rentals, which until this point have been very, very, very stable. And they lean more toward that. That way of appraisal leans more toward intrinsic value, which real estate's tangible. It should be more stable instead of going with the comp approach, which is all based on fair market, which is all based on emotion. Right. So, so let me ask you, Jason, because that's it's it's a fascinating topic, and I and I read that paper you guys put out in September, and it's it's really illuminating. It's and it's something I think that agents should be doing. Um, I, I think you should be doing both approaches, frankly, to just as a matter of you know form pro forma, which is you should do a comps approach and you should do sort of the the least income approach. I mean, I think that's you you sort of get the best of both worlds when you look at it that way. But I'm I'm curious in this market when the news is out, you know, Manhattan rents are plummeting and and you know rents are just falling and falling because you know the people are changing. How do you how does that affect the narrative that you're trying to tell developers in terms of how are their how the values of the intrinsic value, as you say, how, how that's doing in, in sort of that deflationary nature of rents at the moment. That's a great point. So before COVID, we were, it, was a, it was easy to present this narrative, right? And that is, um, you know, you, you go back and look at the rents, right? So whereas sales were climbing straight up a mountain, rents have always been stable. And so it's easy to articulate why it's important to use a stabilizing input within an equation for valuation, right? And that's what's become difficult for people to understand with COVID is, well, you're saying that when sales are declining, you can use stable rents to help stabilize that equation and stabilize that value calculation, solving the equation for value, but rents are declining too. So the simple answer is, and it's not, it's not a cop-out, it's actually the answer, is that you can use previous rents because they did not move for so long Mm -hmm. The only thing that affected them was COVID. You know, this is not a, it's, it was a one-time thing. It will reverse itself. We can go back and use previous rents. So luckily, as you saw in that paper, we did a comprehensive study, 445 new development units across 21 buildings throughout the city and determined an average pre-COVID cap rate, capitalization rate. And also we understood a metric for rents. And that was for, for roughly speaking, every one and a half million dollars of spend, an investor could, could assume that they would achieve $5,000 per month of rent. Okay, and that goes up. So 3 million becomes 10, you know, 3 million spend becomes 10,000 rent. So we can go back through, and even though the rents have, have you know, dropped off a cliff, we can use that pre-COVID cap rate, and we can use those pre-COVID rent metrics, plug those inputs into the equation and solve for value, and the value should still be accurate. So, and, and that really does, you know, we've, I've done, I've run multiple, you know, case studies with this and it works, it's really, you know, quite accurate. And so what you see is doing that, that's the whole idea is that 
real estate is tangible, right? We're talking about as an asset class. It is a much more tangible asset than say stocks or bonds. And being as such, the value, I mean, did the value of apartments really increase 40 and 50 and 60 and 100%, you know, over between 2013 and 2015? And are they really decreasing by 40, 50, 60% now? I mean, the answer is no. And so using those stabilizing inputs in the equation will also stabilize that value. So it does work. It's a little hard to go back and say that's use pre-COVID uh, numbers for post-COVID world, but it works quite accurately. I mean, how, how long do you think, I mean, the new development market, let's, let's, since you do a lot of research there, I want to focus on that. Sure. Um, could you describe like the next couple of years? Like, I mean, how, how long is, are, is that the challenges in that sector going to be there? Is 2021 a challenging year for new development or is there a comeback? Um, I think 2021, unfortunately, is certainly a challenging year. I mean, the, the numbers of new development units, you know, so that dearth of inventory is pretty astounding. Um, you know, some of the, everybody has a little bit different number, but it's, you know, what I've seen is between seven and 8,000 units. And again, the biggest problem, you know, that in and of itself is not a problem. We had that kind of inventory back in, you know, 2003 and four and five that was absorbed, right? And relatively quickly. The problem is, again, is that in this market, we're seeing a bit of a change in demographics and the buyers becoming more and more, you know, that one bedroom buyer, there's a lot of that. And, and you gentlemen, again, have shed light on that. The problem with that inventory is it's overweight, the two, three, four, and five bedroom units. Right. Yeah, you made, you, it's, it's top heavy over there. You made that point before. And I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to play out in my head how does that get absorbed? And I guess, I mean, we, we talked about the distressed buyers coming in and, and potentially wanting to chomp it up at 50 cents on the dollar for buying up 15, 20 units in bulk. Right. That's a discount. But, but how many developers are really doing that? I can't yeah, so, imagine a lot of them. Right yeah, that, that's a good question. So there, is, there has not been a lot of bulk purchasing yet. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny because I've been watching, it's not funny, this is not a funny topic, but it, you know, it's, it's interesting in the fact that I've been watching this for a long time. And I feel like a bit like Michael Burry probably felt ahead of, uh, you know, from the, the movie, The Big Short. Yeah. Ahead of, you know, watching these rating agencies refuse to downgrade credit when it, it absolutely needed. A, a, it was to way too early. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's the same thing. I've been waiting yeah. for, you know, the natural course of supply demand economics, which is exactly what this is to yeah. take course. And it hasn't. And it, the, the whole thing is these condo inventory loans, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just staving off the natural progression of supply demand economics. And so, you know, what will happen as traders, you both know that everything sells at a certain price, right? Everything becomes valuable at a certain price. You know, all we need in New York City to remedy this problem is about seven to 8,000 buyers, right? Across the world, it's very difficult to convince me that there's not seven or 8,000 investors or end users, right? So it's really just coming to a point where, again, we, we let's narrow that spread, that disconnect between the developer's expectations and the consumer appraisal. And we'll yeah, get- That'll happen in 21. I, I, this is fantastic. I love it. I, and honestly, what it reminds me of, frankly, is it, it's the oil market. So right now we're in what's would be called backwardation where spot prices are above future prices. And I would expect as we have, you know, inventory surplus to continue, that's going to remain. But as that starts dwindling down, since there's no permits in there, we could get to what's called contango, which is at some point where the spot prices are going to be uh, below the futures prices. That's the normal, the normal sort of forward curve. So that'll be 
a, a joy to see whenever we get there down the road. But uh, Jason, I think we're running out of time. If I could just sort of ask you to sum up, you know, what are your top tips for the agents out there that are doing business, not only in the new dev primary market right now, but also the secondary market, uh, that'd be great. Okay, uh, good question. Well, again, I think the secondary market is really business as usual. And as COVID, the vaccine changes everything, right? People start to come back, New York City, New York City is New York City. It'll, it will come back, people will come back. And the secondary market has been re very resilient. And I think it, it steps right back into its pre-COVID shoes. I really don't see much there. So I think the tip for agents there would be just hold course. Um, it's all coming back, you know, see it that way. As far as new development, I think there needs to be transparency to agents and consumers just to say, look, here's the reality situation. Um, and there, you know, we need to understand that because there are discounts. And if those discounts are transparent and the number of remaining units is transparent, the public won't just sit back and say, I'm just going to wait forever and ever and ever for this, you know, things to turn around. They'll start to make offers. Maybe it won't be what the developer wants, but they'll make offers. Transactions will occur. And like you said, in, in relation to the oil market, we'll start to create momentum momentum will shrink that inventory and that'll start to create the sense of urgency again, which will absorb the rest of the inventory. Somewhere, someplace, Johnny, Jared Randolph is screaming amen to what, to what Jason Thomas just said. Um, he has been screaming for more transparency in the new development sector and, and appealing to these developers to tell, the, tell where the market is, the buyers will come. Don't try to just make this a one-off thing let the market do its thing. The momentum will swing. The inventory will swing. And the whole forces, all the dynamics will turn around. And when the Titanic turns around, the pricing power comes back in your favor. And here we are. We can go now talk a longer term sustainable growth pattern here. So, exactly. Yeah. And one last point. So transparency, efficient market theory is based around one of the, one of the inputs is transparency. Large number of buyers, large number of sell sellers, transparency of information. So we need to infuse that back in the market to let efficient market theory take its course. For the primary market, very cool. Very, very different, very different kind of podcast. Thank you so much. Jason Thomas of Elegrant Head of Research. That is John Walker. He's my partner here at Urban Digs. I am Noah Rosenblatt. This has been Talking Manhattan and we'll catch you next time.